This podcast is brought to you by Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com and get started today. Do children have a constitutional right to literacy? And is it the government's responsibility to adequately fund schools so students learn what they need to reach appropriate reading levels? In the Detroit public school system, it was recently found that only 7% of its eighth grade students were proficient in reading. So in 2016, a group of noted U.S. Supreme Court lawyers filed a federal civil rights claim against the city's school system. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm discussing the lawsuit with Carter Phillips, one of the attorneys representing the plaintiffs. Welcome to the show, Carter. Thank you, Stephanie. It's, uh... A pleasure to be here. What I wanted to ask you first was, is how did this case come to the attorney's minds? How did you get the idea from it? Was it something that came about when you were sitting around talking? What inspired you to file this? Well, I think it's fair to give public counsel, the, the public interest law firm that operates in uh, out of California, the first level credit here. They I think have been examining educational issues for quite some time, and along with other public interest litigation matters. And I don't know, if, I don't know exactly how they connected in the first instance with uh, some of the local people in Detroit, but they did. And the more they did the investigation, the clearer it became that, in a very sad way, I think Detroit has become almost the perfect storm of inadequate access uh, to literacy. And so then they reached out to law firms and lawyers who have the kind of expertise you might need if you're going to litigate a case like this for the long haul. And uh, I guess, fortunately, one of the firms that falls in that category is Sidley, my firm. And uh, I was enthusiastic to work on the case as as well as uh, a substantial number of my partners. What did you think when you first heard about uh, how they were planning to shape the argument? And when they contacted you, what was your first impression? Well, my first reaction was probably that this issue's been litigated already and, and, and not in a way that was particularly favorable to the students. You know, Rodriguez in 73, even though I was slightly, I guess I was in law school, but just barely in law school. And that was, you know, went out, went the other way, although there's a caveat there that essentially identifies the possibility of the standards or the provision of, of education being so low uh, that it could, in fact, violate the Constitution. Those are those kind of giveaway lines that the Supreme Court often uses that you never really have much of an opportunity to take advantage of. But you know, the, the truth is, if, if, there, if there is such a case out there, it seems to me uh, Detroit will certainly push you to the edge of believing that uh, this, is, this, this cannot be what anybody thinks of as providing any kind of uh, an educational opportunity. Right. And some of the things that are mentioned in your complaint, like the outdated uh, textbooks, the the proficiency levels of reading and math, the safety issues in the buildings. Do you think, I mean, as you said, Detroit does take you there, but do you think that these conditions exist in a lot of other large um, urban school systems? I'm reasonably certain that they do. I mean, yeah. we, we weren't doing a survey of, of the nation and, and search of. I think this is one of those uh, situations where you, you find a particular problem and then you set out to solve that problem rather than kind of see how does that problem compare to others. 
So my guess is there are other large urban communities that will have pockets of schools that are extremely uh, unhelpful in terms of providing basic access to education, basic access to literacy. Um, but in this particular case, you know, we identified five schools in the Detroit public school system that seemed to us so far below whatever minimal standards you'd want to set that that made it sensible to to challenge. The other the other aspect of it, of course, is Michigan controls the public education program in Detroit in a way that is significantly different than a lot of other municipalities. A lot of a lot of uh, of other school districts are are funded uh, less directly from the state, and so. I think having a bit of a disconnect between who's doing the funding and who's getting the money and the relationship there probably makes Detroit in some ways less, or at least makes the school system more of a in jeopardy of, of kind of being overlooked in the scheme of things. I see. And you mentioned how they get the funding. Um, do you see in different Michigan school districts that they're getting funding from parents or tax dollars? Does it very dramatically based on where one lives well, and what yeah. kind of funding if, they get. Right. I mean, if you, the, the, as we say in the complaint, the, the dividing line between Detroit and Gross Point is the single largest barrier to uh, educational access and probably the biggest barrier to <laughs> racial integration that you could devise um, because Gross Point has enormous resources. Some of that comes from the state, some of it comes from private entities, um, and it has all of the resources you would want in order to be a very successful educational program. Uh, and then by comparison, literally across the border, and uh, none of those resources uh, is available to uh, the public schools that are right there. I was curious, too, if Detroit might be different from other uh, urban city school districts that have some problems and that if you're in Chicago or Los Angeles, for example, I think you can find some wonderful public schools and some really uh, not so good public schools. In Detroit, is there a mix as well? Are there some really good schools in the Detroit public system or is it not so much because it's more segregated perhaps? I think it's more segregated. You know, mm. the Supreme Court decided the question about the uh, interdistrict um, uh, desegregation way back when in the in the seventies, and Detroit was the case. And the court said, no, you couldn't go interdistrict in terms of providing a remedy. And I think as a consequence of that, it, it really did freeze the internal versus external, and created the kind of white flight and, and wealth flight out of Detroit that uh, makes it difficult and makes it difficult to, to have enough resources available within the city to um, improve the quality of the educational system. Um, so I, I'm i sure there are some, there, there must be a, a school or two, I and mean, we didn't take on that issue. We're not going after the entire school right. at Detroit. Um, right. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that every school is, uh, it would be on our list, um, but the reality is there are four. There are at least five schools that I can identify readily that simply do not educate their students at, a, at what I would regard as a minimally adequate way to, to to allow them even access to literacy, much less actually provide them with uh, literacy. When you started working up the case, what surprised you the most? It's the 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 conditions themselves, the the idea that there would be 50 students where you have 
seats available for half of them or so, and others are sitting around on the floor and standing around, and they don't. Most of them don't have books. A lot of them don't have actual teachers. They have some of them have students teaching. Um, I mean, it's just and and it's and the whole the conditions are just simply nothing like I guess what I think of uh, as a as a person who's never been in that kind of an environment before, uh, as as it remotely aimed at trying to ensure that the, every every one of those students somehow is going to get past, past the finish line of you know, kind of basic literacy to be in a position to take advantage of math and reading and, and writing and and then go on to science and other enterprises. I mean, all of these things are additive, and if you and if it's so clear at the beginning that there's no real effort being made to ensure simple understanding of words and how to sound them out and what phonetics are about, then the rest of it is is a complete loss because you can't you can't build off of a non-existent foundation. So I, I, I have to say I'm shocked. You're saying that in some of the classrooms there wouldn't be enough chairs for the students in a class to sit in and they'd sit on the floor during class. Yeah, or stand around the teacher's desk. I mean, that's, that's pretty. And, and this wasn't like rug time in kindergarten or the first grade. Wow, um, has oh, this, it? This was educational time, right? <laughs> well, I think some people would say rug time is too. But I'm curious: has it come to the point yet where a council has had a chance to ask the administrators why don't you have enough chairs for your students who come to class? And if so, what was their answer? I mean, we've talked to we've talked to the students, we've talked to the parents, we've talked to some teachers. We haven't talked to the administrators at this point because, candidly, in some sense, they're on the they are on the other side of the litigation. Sure. We can't really reach out to them at this point. Right. We're we're at the complaint phase of this. I mean, look, the answer is pretty obvious. They don't have the resources, and and if they have and whatever resources they have, they're going to put in, you know, whatever band aid will help whatever problem needs an immediate solution and buying chairs probably is a fairly low priority. I mean if you don't have enough if you don't have you know if you're trying to decide between books and chairs, where would you go? I suppose if you're if you're a school you probably want to have books. Um but they say But they don't have books either. either. Right. Exactly. So so what are you gonna do? Chairs break and you can't you don't have any money to replace them and that's some and and the number of students continues to increase. So you have to you can't uh you not only can't replace what what breaks, but you you certainly don't have the funds to expand and any of the resources that might otherwise be needed. You mentioned the different funding sources, and if you're in a school district of a lot of middle and upper middle class students, oftentimes there's some very ambitious fundraising at those individual schools. And I was curious what you thought about that, if it's ultimately very helpful. Um, one thing that occurred to me was, is does it make sense to do a bunch of fundraising for your school, which is, you know, very laudable and takes up a significant amount of people's times? Or perhaps would the energy be better to press the government for more funding for schools, to buy some chairs, you know, for people whose parents can't fund the school for chairs and put more put more pressure on the government to give the schools more money for basic needs that are shocking if you don't go to those schools that they don't have. I guess the question is uh, people, individuals focus, uh, uh, individual people's focus is if you have, if you have school age children uh, and, and they're going to school somewhere other than in the inner city in Detroit and you're trying to take, you know, maximize their ability to 
be educated. I'm not shocked that you would do everything you can to raise money to improve the quality of the school experience for your kids. I mean, it benefits you directly. If, if you're living outside of that area and looking at, at Detroit, and you know, I would hope that the average resident outside of Detroit would feel some moral compulsion to improve the quality of life in, inside that city. But, I mean, that's a stretch in terms of mm-hmm. the way the politics of, of state government operate. I mean, they've got lots and lots of priorities and calls on their on their resources. And you know, one of the sort of sad facts is you can't participate in the democratic system if you don't have access to basic literacy. And so in one sense, you've almost guaranteed that these will be the most politically disenfranchised segment of our, of our society, of this particular society, because they're not well enough educated even to know how to seek to get to improve it. Plus, by the time they leave school, their you know their incentive or enthusiasm for changing it is has now long since gone. You know, that they, nothing can help them at that point, and they may or may not be worried about the next generation. I see. Um, and what is your sense for for Detroit, where um, you know with, with the problems they have? How much of that is related? Like, what percentage would you say is related to school funding? Would it be a hundred percent, ninety percent? Do you have a sense on that? Oh, I, yeah, I'm sure it's. I doubt that it's a hundred percent because um, with all the money in the world, you're still going to have some issues, I suppose. But uh, you know, in in order to put yourself in a position where you at least have adequate resources to guarantee everybody has a seat, everybody has a has books. You have decent teachers uh, committed to it who are fully certified, et cetera. I mean that that that's a funding issue. Those those are all uh, elements that can be solved to some extent with funding. You know, can can will there be issues about whether or not teachers really want to be in that school system and and continue to f- deal with turnover? It's hard to know. It's 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 not unrealistic to think that there will continue to be substantial turnover as opportunities come along to take advantage of your experience as a teacher and and somebody comes along and wants to give you uh, more money or uh, an easier commute or a better environment, et cetera, that, that's just inherent. And, and I don't think that one's going to go away. But if you have the basic resources, you're still going to be able to come in and, and backfill with, a, with another cadre, hopefully, of young and energetic and enthusiastic educators. And you mentioned something earlier I wanted to come back to. You said you had heard of students teaching classes. Can you tell me a bit more about what you heard about that? You know, just, uh, I, I wasn't there for that particular session, but I, that, uh, some of my colleagues uh, sat there and, and sat and watched a, um, you know, a class where no teacher showed up and the students, this happened twice, I guess, and the student had, you know, sort of took it upon him or herself to teach what was ever, whatever was supposed to be the assignment for the day. And you, know, you can imagine the, the, the amount of attention focused on a, you know, one, on one student by 30 some other students is not likely to be uh, all that great. No. It's loud, no. boisterous. Yeah. I mean, you don't, if, if you don't, I mean, the one thing at least an adult can give you is some measure of control. Um, whereas a student obviously has 
substantially less access to that. And I was curious, it seems like now for uh, people who want to enter the teaching profession, it's extremely hard to find a job, largely because of funding. Um, Is it also hard to get hired by the Detroit Public School District, or is that a pretty easy place where you can teach if you want to? Are they hiring? Oh, sure. They, They would hire. I mean, the problem is they can't, they can't recruit nearly enough fully certified teachers to, to mm. fill in those slots. And that shouldn't come as a big surprise because if you have any other choice about where you would teach, why would you teach in a place that's rat infested, cockroach infested, doesn't have enough seats for the students, doesn't have any books for the students, um, where education is not um, perceived to be a central element of what the state's mission is all about. And, and then here you are at a not fabulous um, compensation level to begin with, not horrible, but not, but certainly nothing to write home to mom about. I mean, in the scheme of things, you would only take that, uh, that job opportunity if, candidly, there wasn't anything else available. And even then, you might, you might prefer to go into a different profession. Detroit's the only city that the state has lifted the requirement that teachers have to be certified. I'm sure they did that with with the hope that maybe they could find people who are still good and energetic and capable of providing some additional education. But at the end of the day, what you're talking about is a, a single location, single educational system where it is where it is lawful under state law to uh, put in as teachers people who are otherwise utterly disqualified or or, or incompetent to teach in any other school in the state. And that's, that's, that by itself sends an extraordinary message. Carter, if you could please hold that thought. Before you continue, we need to hear a word from our sponsor. These days, law firms need to do more with less. Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management Software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on amicus every day to run their practices. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward. And on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Carter Phillips, one of the attorneys who is involved in the lawsuit against the Detroit public school system, which alleges that children have a constitutional right to literacy. Um, So, Carter, we were speaking about the issue that in Detroit, they must have certified teachers in their school. And that's a problem, as you mentioned. I'm curious if in working up the case, did you come across many teachers who were certified as reading specialists or um, had like special education certification uh, or perhaps some offerings within that, like offerings for speech or dyslexia, ADHD specialists, anything like that? Yeah, they have them in the school system, but they don't, that they rarely make it to the to the particular schools we're talking about. In fact, I don't remember, I don't recall any instances in which any of the specialized teachers were there, but that could just be a function of we weren't there, our, our folks weren't there in the same time. But uh, yeah, realistically, what you would be talking about is a person who's got responsibility for a dozen schools and, and who might show up once every 12 days to, to make a cameo appearance at, at one of the schools that's involved in our litigation. So I mean, those resources exist, but they are in extraordinarily limited supply and not going to be in a, and that realistically, that's not going to be 
uh, much of a help, certainly to remediate the problems that have been allowed to creep up now through the last decade. I see. And earlier you mentioned that there are significant differences between the Detroit school system and other Wayne County school districts. Can you tell us briefly, what are some of the biggest differences you've noticed? Well, if, just, if you look, look at the quality of the schools themselves, just the physical plant is is eye-popping. I think these are, these are not necessarily all brand new schools out in the suburbs, but they are very, very nice, largely inviting kinds of buildings and uh, edifices, and inside they seem to have all of the uh, equipment that you would want. Um, you know, the gymnasium <laughs> is uh, ready to be played on in a ser- serious way. I mean, they're, they're the schools that have uh, swimming pools, have swimming pools that actually have clean water in them and that work. The swimming pools in our schools uh, have dead rats in them and no water, which mm-hmm. I guess went to if the rats die of starve of <laughs> thirst, I don't know. Maybe they can't swim. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, but you said there's no water. Excuse me. Right. There's no water. So <laughs> swimming's not their issue. <laughs> yeah. They don't know how to get out of the pool, and, and so they just die there. But I mean, it's just it. it you know, it's, it, that part's all appalling. And if you see the teachers, the teachers are all dressed nicely and ready to go and excited, et cetera. And uh, at least the few I've seen inside the the our school district you know they they are pretty tired they're in they, you know they're doing their best they're trying hard uh, and it and it is it's a it's a it's an extraordinarily difficult task i think i, I you know i i marvel that people do it on a day in day out basis when they know that they're you know ultimately struggling to just try to try to get what one percent two percent of their of their students to to proficiency and that's that's just a heart-wrenching kind of situation to be placed in, I think. Well, and I was curious how the Detroit school system approaches standardized um, testing, because I know in Chicago, at my children's school, I mean, there's a big push. We get emails a month ahead letting us know it's coming and saying, you know, be sure and don't miss any school and get to bed early and have a good breakfast. And they don't have any homework the week of standardized testing, which which is great. But um, I was curious if you had seen how the administrators in your the schools that you're suing, how do they approach their standardized testing time? Is it just like another day or yeah, it's just like it has to be because they they don't have they don't have the luxury of being able to kind of step aside and and uh, kind of say, well let's 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 clear our minds now and let's focus on exactly what we need to focus on and make sure you get home and have a nice meal. That's probably up in the air as to whether that was going to happen anyway. I mean, none of none of the, those. I mean, I, that that in a lot of ways is kind of a luxury that, that you. I mean, I understand sure. why schools do it. Certainly, makes perfect sense to get everybody in the right frame of mind. But that's not that's not realistic in the five schools where our students are, and and at least as far as I know, they they've been. If there's any communication about it, it's pro forma. Not it's not really serious in terms of expecting that there's going to be some vast change in focus for these. Students and and ultimately, if you haven't got the basics of how to sound out words and phonetics or any other things, it's not going to make any difference whether you take a day off and clear your mind. There's nothing right. for you to be able to demonstrate proficiency with. Um, what responsibility, if any, do you think that the caregivers of children and uh, your the schools that you're suing, what responsibility do they have for their children's literacy? 
I mean, this lawsuit, while it challenges what's going on inside the five schools, it's really a lawsuit against the state of Michigan and their officials mm-hmm. uh, responsible for the school board for this for the provision of education, and and that's certainly where they put it. They say, well, this is all on the all on the parents or caregivers of of the children uh, and their motion to dismiss. That's where they argue this. Um, I, I just think that's that's fine. There's some measure of, of responsibility, I think, that goes there. I don't, I, don't, I don't quarrel with that. You can always hope the caregivers will provide greater help. But at the end of the day, it's not the responsibility of the caregivers to provide a minimum, access, a minimum of access to literacy and to, and to the basic materials needed to, to get an education. I mean, I, I just don't – I find it hard to imagine that the state of Michigan really believes that – they can have a law that 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 makes uh, going to public school mandatory, create buildings that are little little you know more than a warehouse, with no educational resources available, and then say that somehow satisfies uh, anybody's notion of, of providing a realistic opportunity to be educated. There's a great quotation from that comes from Chief Justice Roberts, of all people. It just came out a couple of weeks ago in the Douglas School District case. And it comes up in the context of the IDEA, which is obviously dealing with children's, children with disabilities. But, it, but what he says there it's, it's sort of resonated with me as somebody who's been thinking about these issues now for a while. But you know, when all is said and done, a student offered an educational program providing quote, merely more than de minimis progress from year to year can hardly be said to have been offered an education at all. And the reality is, is I'm not even sure my clients even got minimus progress. I don't think they got any progress. I think, if anything, there were, there were probably degradations in their skill sets uh, over time. But in any event, they certainly didn't get anything more than de minimis. And I think the Chief Justice got it exactly right. That's no education at all. You mentioned earlier we were talking about uh, the students advocating for themselves. And you mentioned that if you haven't been taught to read, it's a little hard to figure out how to advocate for yourself and what you need to do. Do you have a sense that for some of the children in your case, their parents also went to the Detroit public school system and they also did not get a minimum education for literacy, and perhaps their grandparents did as well. Do you have a sense of whether this is a problem that's been going on for generations? Well, there's no question that the Detroit public school system has been inadequate for some period of time. I think it, it certainly dates back to the 70s when the, when the court rejected the idea that there could be inter-district uh, remedies available. And so, yes, I'm, I'm quite certain that there, that there are generations now of individuals who are in this in the system. And, and you know, you think about it, it's really quite tragic, the idea that if a parent made it through the Detroit public system without being able to demonstrate any proficiency on any of the kind of basic measures of skills, is employed presumably in a, in a, a position that's, that's probably uh, minimum wage, uh, and then has children, and those children are going through exactly the same situation. They, they don't, the, the parents really literally don't know enough to stay this is just wrong. Right. I mean, they can, they can, they, I mean, I, I got to believe intuitively they know it is, but I don't even know that they know how to articulate that this is just wrong other than we have to put our children, you know, have to send the children to school. That's mandatory. We'll comply with our obligations and we do that. Um, but, you know, but to say the caregivers, you know, they thought it should be on you to do more. I, you know, they have to at least have 
the same level of of uh, literacy that that uh, somebody else would be able to provide in order to help their children. I mean, it doesn't help if they if they can't read, then obviously they're not going to be able to help their children read. Right. Um, if you prevail in this lawsuit, what do you think that could mean for other school districts that have similar problems? I would hope in the first instance that, that if we were to win this case, that the that the politics would shift dramatically, that now it's not a matter of simply sweeping all of this under the rug and not worrying about the, the worst of the worst conditions that, that may exist in a particular school district. I would hope that people would say, you know what, well, we now owe it. We now have a constitutional responsibility to do more. And if they're looking for a compelling argument for why they should devote more resources to education, this would be a pretty compelling argument, I would hope. So I, I think it has implications on that score. And obviously, it would provide a basis upon which you could go in and do the same kind of an inquiry that we did in Detroit, look at the individual schools. It's not always that easy because obviously the, the administrations don't really give you full access to the schools, um, in, in some ways for perfectly legitimate reasons. But but uh, you know it does make it a more complicated process. But I, I think people, if they saw that the that there is a fundamental right to access to literacy, uh, that would cause more parents, more students put up their hands and say, I, I don't believe my school's providing it. And so we could find more situations and be in a better position to kind of seek relief and remedies for a, a wider range of, of individuals. But as I said, to me, the, what would be more powerful is if just the fact of a, of a holding would cause resources to shift away from wherever they're being spent now and more in the direction of trying to educate our, our youngest Citizens. Have you found that many people think that's already established law, that there is a fundamental right to literacy? I think most people in a, in a colloquial sense believe that, that there is a fundamental right to literacy. That, I mean, how can, it, how can you have a system that says you have to go to school for eight years, but not, uh, not expect you to actually come away with anything other than spending time in a building for eight years? Um, but, you know, the reality is... Uh, it, it, such a right doesn't doesn't exist at the moment, um, and at least not in any way that's uh, judicially enforceable. And so, I think I think on the you know, law in the court of public opinion, we're probably already ahead of the game. But in the <laughs> court of laws, we're going to have a. I think we still have an uphill climb. What's next in the case? What comes next on the docket? There's been a skirmish about uh, amicus briefs. A lot of a lot of amicus groups have come in, not surprisingly, and, and on both sides. But that'll that'll take care of itself soon, and then we'll we'll do uh, we'll file our reply brief shortly, and uh, then the case will be teed up for argument on a motion to dismiss. I assume the district judge will will hold an oral argument on the on the motion to dismiss. That'll that'll be should be fun and interesting. I hope, obviously, is that the court uh, denies the motion to dismiss and gives us the opportunity to engage in some of the discovery to get at some of the questions you asked, which is you know, talk to the administrators, talk to the state, understand how it is. It, understand if the state even even knows about the conditions in these schools to some extent, but, but then uh, try to get answers to the questions why we don't have the basic resources and what would it take to get there. 
All right. Carter, that's everything I wanted to ask you today. Would you like to add anything else? No, Stephanie, I appreciate very much the opportunity to talk with you about a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, I guess we'll just stay tuned and see what happens with the litigation. Well, thank you so much, Carter. It was wonderful speaking with you today. And listeners, thank you for joining us on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and I hope you tune in again next month.